The following audio is from West Pines Community Church. For more information about West Pines, visit us online at westpines.org. You can join us live Sunday mornings at 9, 10, 30, or 12 in Pembroke Pines, Florida, or online at westpines.org. As we kick off this Love Is series, we wanted to start with a game that we call Name That Artist. Okay, here's what's going to happen. In just a second, I'm going to show you a short snippet of a music video, and you have to call out, when you know it, the artist. See, you thought you were going to just come in here and relax, but there's some audience participation here. Can you guys do this? Can you do this with me today? All right, you're ready. You're ready. You had some coffee this morning, I can tell. All right. So here's how this works. Each of these songs is a classic song about love. I mean, we're rolling it back, okay? These are classics about love. And when you see this snippet, as soon as you know the artist, you shout it out. Can you do this? Okay, here's round one. Take a look, shout out when you know the artist. All you need is love. The Beatles. The Beatles. That, is, that was special. Did you see? There was a lot of flowers on that video, okay? That was, the Beatles, all you need is love. That was easy. Round one, that was a gimme. It was a softball right there, right? Lobbed up in the air. Not the softball's easy, okay? I don't want to get in trouble with anyone. All right. You got that one, okay? Now, this next one, it's going to get a little more difficult, but you seem awake and alert, okay? So you're, this is round two. Name the artist when you know it. Check it out. Captain and Tennille. That is well done. I'm impressed. You guys knew that. Okay, that was on it. Love Will Keep Us Together is the name of that song. Rolling it back. Captain and Tennille. Okay, now this last one, we've saved the last one. This one's really special. Okay, I know every person in this room, every human being alive knows this song, but do you know the artist? Okay, I'm just gonna come right out and say the first service, only one person knew the artist, but you guys are smarter than the first service, right? You can do this, you're more hip. Okay, you got this, okay? I believe in you, this is the final round, dig deep, here we go, round number three. What is love? Hadaway, that is correct. Hadaway, who knew that? I want to see a show of hands. Five people. Give those five a round of applause. I think, I think we should give them a round of applause. Okay? The other reason is I wanted to get that song stuck in your head for the rest of the day, okay? What is love by Hadaway? That was number three. Okay, now I want you to think about these three songs, all classics about love. Okay, the first one is All You Need Is Love by the Beatles, Love Will Keep Us Together by Captain and Tennille, and then What Is Love by Hadaway. And I want you to think about what all three of these songs are communicating because they're, they're revealing something that, about how our culture handles this idea of love. Okay, if I were to argue, if I were to come here and say the most important thing in a relationship is love, 
I wouldn't get a whole lot of pushback. Like, that's not a hard thing to argue. Like, our, our culture already expects that type of thing. We've got, uh, we've got artists that sing about, yes, love will keep us together, love will get us through, love, and the Beatles took it a step further. It's not just love is like the centerpiece. They say love is all you need, okay? So we, we know that the idea of love is that important. It's that central. It's that foundational. And that's something that our culture readily accepts. But there's this other side about love that our culture also communicates. We say, yes, love is central, but at the same time we say, but who really actually knows what love is? It's this mysterious thing. What is love? Or we sing, I want to know what love is. Just want to stick that song in your brain for the rest of the day, okay? We say, we, we say, yes, it's this mysterious thing that no one really knows. It just strikes you one day. And, and we'll say, like, things that don't make any sense, like, you'll know when it hits you. We say all these things saying, yes, love is vital, it's essential, it's central. But we say, but it's mysterious. So this is some of the discussions that our culture has about love. But here's the interesting thing. The Bible, written... Thousands of years ago, parts of it, the, the Bible weighs in on both parts of that. Is love like the fundamental, most important thing? It, it, it talks about that. And then, okay, if so, then what is it? And it talks about that. And so we're going to take this series and talk through, and this series Love Is, and talk about those subjects. Now, why would you care what, this, what an old book like the Bible care, says, why would you care what it says about love? Well, what we believe here at our church is that God himself spoke through various writers, inspired them in their own context and their time in history, and so what's preserved in the Bible is God's words on the most important truths in the universe, truths about us, about him, and it's preserved there in the Bible. But you may be here and say, look, I, am, I don't know that I'm there. I'm definitely not ready to say that this is God's words. And if that's where you're at, first off, I want you to know we respect where you're at in your journey. And I'm just glad that you're here. And so if that's where you're at, then at least consider this. Maybe just operate initially from this standpoint. This, this book is one of the most, I think we here would say, the most influential book in the history of man. Whole civilizations have been built on the truths from here. So when you're dealing with such a massive subject by love, about, as love, it would be wise to at least see what this has to say on that subject. But what we believe is even more important because this is God as the final word sharing, telling us and teaching us on important subjects such as love. There's one more thing that I think this is interesting, especially taking this passage and using it to talk about marriage. Because if you're in your wedding, if you had... Uh, so any scripture read, like if you had a friend or a cousin or a sibling read some scripture at this wedding or you had a priest or pastor that did like a little homily or a little sermon, I bet at least half of you this passage showed up at your wedding. So if it did, then I would think you'd be interested in knowing what it means because it should reverberate through the rest of your marriage. We're going to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And we're going to start at verse 1. If you have a Bible or Bible app, if you would open to 1 Corinthians 13, verse 1. Let's see what it says. 
If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or clanging symbol. Now we're going to just take this a bite size at a time. Let's just start with this first one. This is his opener into an entire chapter defining love, and it's an interesting opener. The author of 1 Corinthians is a guy named Paul. He's writing a letter to Christians in the city of Corinth. That's why it's called Corinthians. And he's writing to them, and his opener is this thing, this miraculous gift called speaking in tongues. Now, what does that mean? Tongues is like, as in like languages. But in, it's kind of a technical term in the New Testament called speaking in tongues. Now, this is, a mirac- this is a term for a miraculous gift that covers many different things under that umbrella. We could spend all morning just talking about that subject in and of itself, but for the sake of staying true to what this passage is about, let me just take one slice of what's under the umbrella of what's called speaking in tongues and talk about it so we can get Paul's main point here about love. One of the things he talks about is speaking in the tongues of men, in the languages of men. And here's what he means. It's not just someone that knows a lot of languages. He's referring to a phenomenon, a miraculous phenomenon, that is the most well-known, most famous example of what's called speaking in tongues in Scripture. Here's what happened. All of Jesus' followers, his disciples, were huddled together. Jesus had already died on the cross come back from the dead and gone back to heaven. And this is a few weeks later. They're in Jerusalem and people from all over the world are in Jerusalem because there's this feast called Pentecost. And they're all huddled together in this room and it says the Spirit of God just kind of comes on them, like fills each of them and empowers them miraculously so that they leave that room and they all start preaching out in Jerusalem. But the miracle was there's people from all over the world and as they're preaching, people are hearing them preach in languages from their native country. These languages that these, many of them uneducated fishermen would not have known, could not have possibly learned. So you've got people from Africa that are like, wait, that's the native tribal language that I I speak. And you've got people from Europe or from Asia and they're all hearing all these different languages and it was a miracle that God did. And the story, as it's described in Acts, God was taking advantage of the fact that there's all these people from all over the world in Jerusalem so that people can hear this message of God's love and hear about Jesus, go back to their hometown and be able to relay that message. So he does this incredible miracle. And this is one slice of what's talked about in the scripture of speaking in tongues. Now, can you imagine God empowering you to do something like that? That's unbelievable. That would be unbelievable. And what Paul says, this opener was, and, and why does he start with this, this particular issue? Is because the Corinthians were very interested in this subject of speaking in tongues. So he starts with it. He says, You could be empowered to speak in the tongues of men and even of angels. He says, But if you don't have love, he says, You're like a clanging cymbal. Okay, now think about this. You're there on Pentecost. You're from another land, and now all of a sudden you hear your native language spoken. That would have been music to your ears. But can you imagine if I walked back to the drum set, and I took out some drumsticks, and I just started clanging just randomly on those cymbals? It would take about four seconds for that to get really annoying. 
He says, if you don't have love, you might be empowered miraculously to speak in these tongues. He says, but if you don't have love, it's just noise. Big statement. But he keeps going, and each time he's going to up the ante a little bit. Look at verse 2, 13 verse 2. He says, and if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I'm nothing. Man, that's a big statement. He says, imagine that you are gifted miraculously with prophetic powers. That means like a situation like this. Someone comes up to you, they're asking for advice, and then all of a sudden God gifts you with the discernment to see things in their life and to perceive things in their life that they haven't even told you, to be one example. And you're gifted with that kind of miraculous insight. And then on top of that, you have, all, you have all knowledge and you can understand all mysteries. Can you imagine how incredible that would be? That, that no matter what the issue is, if someone came to you, you could give them the right advice. There's no mystery that you couldn't speak into. They have dating problems, you know the exact right thing. They have problems with their business, you know the exact right things. You have that kind of discernment, almost miraculous level, actually miraculous level discernment and wisdom. You understand all mysteries. So if you have all of that, like 100%, and that'd be like near like superhero powers, he says, you have all, understand all mysteries and all knowledge and all prophetic powers, and you have no love. He says, you are nothing. Not just, it's not as good as if you had love. He says, you're a zero. It's worthless. Big statement. Now look at this one because I think he almost takes it over the top here. Look at this. Verse three. If I give away all I have Deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Did you hear what he just said? He said, you decide to liquidate everything you own, everything, and give away all of that to the poor and the needy. You, have, you own nothing. You give it all away, 100%. He says, and then on top of that, you surrender your body to be burned, what is that? That's like an idiom. That's like a phrase meaning to surrender yourself to martyrdom. He says, you could sell everything you have, give to the needy. He says, and you could surrender yourself to martyrdom. You believe something so strongly, so immovably. You, you stand for truth. He's not talking about someone who's, who acts like a martyr or thinks they're a martyr. He's talking about literally someone who stands so strongly for the right thing, for what they believe, that they're willing to die for it. I mean, it's hard to find someone that you'd have higher respect for than someone who's willing and actually dies for what they believe, for truth or for justice. And what he says is you could give away everything you have. That's an extraordinary act of generosity. He says you could give away your life for what you believe. That's an extraordinary level of sacrifice. But if you don't have love, it's nothing. Which, side note, is kind of interesting because it's almost like he's inferring that you can have extraordinary sacrifice and extraordinary generosity from motives other than love, which is something to think about. He says, you can have all of those things, and if you don't have love, 
you have nothing. Okay. Is it safe to say, based on what we just read, would you agree with me if I said the guy who wrote this, Paul, is arguing love is the most important character trait you could have? Is that, is that a fair statement based on this? He's saying there is nothing higher than love. In fact, he later in this same chapter, he'll say the greatest of all the virtues is love. So the Bible weighs in. We would believe God is weighing in. What is love really the most central, centerpiece, foundational component of a relationship? God would weigh in from this text and say, yes. Love is absolutely central. Love is the key. Love is the thing that you need. Love is what gets you through. It weighs in and says, yes, love is central and foundational. Now, here's the thing. This is about where our culture stops. We say, yes, love is central, but then we say, yeah, but, but no one knows what it is. It's mysterious. It just strikes you one day. You'll, you'll know it when it happens. It's, this, it's like a chubby little angel just strikes you with an arrow. You hear like ridiculous things like love is when you daydream about someone at work and you have a pit in your stomach and you lay awake at night. What's ridiculous about that is I can say all of those things about how I feel about pizza. <laughs> Daydream about it at work, pit in my stomach. After I eat it, I lay awake at night. Cross the board, okay? What we're essentially saying is that love boils down. This is what the best our culture does, typically, is it says, okay, love is central, we got that, but we can't take it the next step and say, let's define it. So all we say is love is like this mysterious, overpowering emotion that just, just overtakes everything else. It like wins out over everything else. And we really boil it down to kind of this feeling or this passion that is so strong that nothing can stop it. But what's, uh, what's sad about that is, Whittling it down to an emotion, emotions are the most unreliable and fickle and, uh, and changing part of who we are. You have a bad slice of pizza and your emotions have changed. Emotions are the most fickle part, but the best we can do at defining this most central part of relationships is to kind of whittle it down to this mysterious feeling that overtakes us. And so we think things like this. You can fall in love and you can fall out of love, apparently. So let's take in the next step. Okay, let's define it. And Paul, I mean, the author here, he set this up. He says, man, it is bigger than being gifted with these miraculous powers. He says, it's more substantial than giving away everything that you have. He says, it's more powerful than someone who just gloriously gives up their life for what they believe. I mean, it's bigger than martyrdom. And so if you're like me, I'm like, all right, let's buckle our seatbelts. Okay, what is, how is he going to define love here? Because this sounds tremendous. The giant crescendo. And he gives this whole list of what love is, but I just want you to see his opener. The first ways he defines love. We're just going to look at the first two. Here's what he says, verse 4. Get ready. Love is patient and kind. Is that kind of a letdown for anyone? Kind of expecting a little more. I mean, it's all these massive things. He says, no, love is better. I was expecting something like a little more glorious. Something a little more heroic. I mean, 
patience and kindness. That was, seems like a little bit of a letdown. All right, well, let's dig into it here. What, what does he mean by patient? Okay, let, let's just hang with him for a second. What does it mean to be patient? Like, why these? Why are these his openers of the power of what love is? Let's talk about patience. Patience is an interesting concept. There's a, the way that they used to translate this from the original Greek into the English, and this is antiquated English now, so we don't use this phrasing as much, but it's really revealing. They define patience, they used to define patience as long-suffering. What an interesting phrase. Patience is like enduring. It's not just waiting, it's enduring. Okay, so patience is not this. Yesterday, I was running an errand. I had my son with me, and we went to, um, went to Target. And Target on Saturday afternoon means that there's 14 million other people at the same store. And this particular Target uh, yesterday, um, even though there was a crowd of people, they had only two registers open. And so I'm waiting in a line that seemed like it went out the door and all the way into another county, and I'm waiting at the end of that line, and I'm writing in my mind the complaint letter to Target over this, okay? And then I realized, okay, honestly, it's Saturday afternoon. I, I'm not like, I don't really have anywhere to go. I, I'm, I'm not like, there's nothing urgent. Like, I'm not in bodily harm. I'm not like bleeding out or anything like that, okay? I'm not suffering bodily harm. I'm just mad that I'm not controlling the timing of things in my day, so I'm convenienced, inconvenienced by being out of control. They're going a little slower than I would like. I'm just waiting. That, is, that does require patience, but that's not the, the, what this is talking about. That's just waiting, and it's annoying. Patience is long-suffering. It's enduring something. It's more like this. When I was in high school, I played soccer, and they, they estimate that the average soccer player during the course of one game runs something like seven to nine and a half miles in one game. And so when we would start the season, the number one thing we would do was all conditioning. We would just run and run and run. And there's two different ways they'd do it. Sometimes we'd show up, and they'd say, all right, guys, we're just going to go run three miles. And we'd be like, oh, gosh. And we'd line up and we'd just go run three miles. But there was something else that they would do and it was even worse. Sometimes at the end of practice, they'd just say, go get on the line. And we would go get on the line and he would just blow the whistle and we would just sprint. Then he'd blow the whistle and sprint and then sprint and sprint and sprint. And the torture of it was we had no idea how long it would be. It was hard when he said, we're going to run three miles, but at least we knew that, you know, okay, it's going to be about this long. But we didn't know if it was going to be four days, four minutes. We have no idea. You're just running and running and running. And that's harder because it's indeterminable from our perspective. That's patience. It's when you're enduring through something and you don't even know how long you're going to endure it, but you choose long-suffering. See, patience at its core is essentially sacrifice. You're sacrificing and enduring through something. That's patience. But what is kindness? 
Kindness, the other word he picks, love is patient and kind. I mean, this is his, his lead off. So these must be significant. What is kindness? Kindness is essentially goodness. It's a good disposition towards somebody. But I want you to think about it. Kindness, this warmth towards someone, I want you to think about it. Kindness always, true kindness always costs you something, doesn't it? If you're driving uh, home this afternoon and you see someone and their car broke down on the side of the road, maybe they got a flat tire, they're changing their tire, and you roll down the window and drive by and say, I'll call someone for you and keep driving. (laughs) Not really an act of kindness, okay? It's not really an act of kindness till you pull over, you give your time, you, you get your clothes all messed up, you're sweaty, and you're changing the tire with them, and you're late to where you're going. That's an act of kindness. Hypothetically, okay, I want you to think the difference between these two situations. It's not just doing nice things. Kindness, and we know this intuitively, costs you something. Okay, if um, one day you go to your neighbor and say, can I borrow your weed eater? And he says yes and lends you his weed eater, um, or you lend him your weed eater, and then a couple days later he wants to borrow something from you and you reciprocate it back. That's just being fair. That's fairness. What the real thing would be is if you went and asked to borrow his weed eater and he says no, and then comes and asks for your lawnmower and you say yes, that's an act of kindness. Kindness can be something as small as just a warm, caring demeanor, a warm word, a word of encouragement that's intentional, and sometimes even that can cost you something. You Sometimes you have to dig deep to just be polite and gracious. That is kindness all the way to tremendous acts that cost you something. See, at its core, patience at its core is sacrifice. Kindness at its core is generosity. It costs you. You're giving something. Okay, now even still, we look at those attributes in, in, verse, in chapter 13 and we say, okay, all right, I got you, but how is that still more significant than some great act of generosity like selling all that you have? Or how is that even more significant than surrendering, surrendering yourself to, to martyrdom? Like still, like how are those things more significant to that? I bet if we bring patience and kindness into the context of a marriage, we'll see how those are more significant. Let's start with kindness. Kindness, it's one thing to be kind to your boss. It's one thing to be kind to a stranger, although some people can't even muster that amount of kindness up. It's one thing to be kind to a stranger or to a good friend you don't see very often. That's one thing. But an act of warmth, a disposition of goodness towards, a constantly um, giving of yourself for the person thinking through what they need from their perspective, a constant continual kindness towards the person you're doing life with, that's tremendous. Now think about this kind of as a diagnostic question for your own life. Which is it easier for you to do or which you more often do? Is it more often that you're more kind to the people that you don't live with or the people that you live with? Is it easier to be kind to the people you only see every now and then or is it, is it easier for you to dig in and, and, and be more intentionally warm and, and caring and courteous to your spouse or do they get taken for granted? 
See, kindness like that is a perpetual kind of generosity. I want you to think about it like this. Selling all that you have, that's one great glorious act of generosity and they might put your name on a plaque somewhere. Showing kindness every hour, every minute, and every moment of the day to the person you're spending your life with and choosing to do that, whether you feel rested or healthy or stressed or whether, however you feel, choosing to have a warm, courteous, caring, giving mentality towards that person, that is a constant and perpetual, consistent type of generosity. Okay, is that bigger than selling everything you have to the poor? I think I can prove to you that kindness in marriage is greater than selling everything you have, is tougher with one example. Let's say you have a newborn, hypothetically. And we'll say you are one month into having that little baby, which is about the time when it's not fun anymore, okay? (laughs) That's terrible, I can't say that. But it's true. You're one month in, and it's right about 3.15 in the morning, No one in their right mind stays up that late or gets up that early, okay? It's not a godly time to be awake. And at 3.15 in the morning, you hear a cry and you have an option, don't you? You can either pretend you're still asleep (laughs) or you can be the bigger person and get out of the bed, okay? All right, now in that moment, if you've ever experienced that, I bet as you're laying there in your warm, comfortable bed, on your fluffy pillow, I bet you've thought to yourself, I literally would rather sell everything I own (laughs) than get out of this bed right now, okay? See, what this is talking about, Paul's like, okay, you think selling everything you own in one one decisive, glorious moment that you'll get a lot of applause for, you think that's impressive? Try stepping into a marriage and having constant, perpetual warmth and generosity to your spouse every single minute and moment of the day, that is what love looks like. How about patience? You know, patience is essentially like sacrifice. And here's sometimes the the problem. The problem is we haven't anticipated that patience is foundational to love. And this is where the real danger of where our society doesn't know how to define love, this is where that real danger comes in because what we think the best we can do is love is this mysterious but powerful emotion that overtakes me, I'm drawn to this person, but patience is long-suffering. And specifically in the context of marriage, you married an imperfect person. If you're married, that is not news to you, what I just said. You also are an imperfect person, which may be news to some of you who are sitting here. (laughs) Two imperfect persons are married together, and here's what that means. That means we will have to, it's obvious, but it catches us off guard sometimes, we will have to be patient with the other person as they're growing, Patient as we have to put up with their weaknesses, which were cute until we got married. (laughs) 
And as they're growing in their weaknesses, we will have to be patient. In fact, we will have to be patient as they're growing, even if they say, I don't need to grow in that area. That's long-suffering. We have to dig in and be prepared to be patient, but watch how this works. This is what trips up so many in our culture. All we know is that love is this mysterious emotion, so we think I just fell into it. Rather than choosing long-suffering, when it gets hard, I say, what went wrong? When it's a moment to choose to journey with someone, we say, I must have fallen out of love because I'm not feeling it anymore. Did love stop when it's time to be patient? What Paul says is, that's where it started. When it gets tough and when it's time to be patient, when it's time to be patient for an indeterminate amount of time, that's where Paul says, all right, game on. Now you can start showing love and do long-suffering. Because if I can't have long-suffering with someone as they're growing through their weaknesses for an indeterminate amount of time, how could I possibly have long-suffering when inevitably, as we're on life's adventure, we go through a difficult season together? Your husband loses his job. And he's out of work for a lot longer than he thought. And it's no longer just the financial stress. It's now what he's wrestling through in his self-esteem. He's struggling as a provider. He's struggling with self-worth. He's struggling with identity. And because he's going through a difficult season, he's not acting like the person when you first met him. So you're at a crossroads. Did you just mysteriously fall out of love? Or is this exactly what you committed to do? To walk with him through an indeterminate season when he's not himself and not treating the people around him the way you know he could and can. That's long-suffering. How about a season of grief? One of you loses a parent. You suffer a, a, a miscarriage. And you go through one of those life's one of those life's seasons, maybe you're grieving because you're one of one in eight couples that are struggling with infertility issues and in that season, you're handling that differently and, and you're grieving differently. If you're not expecting, if we're not expecting patience to be a cornerstone, long-suffering and endurance to be a cornerstone of what love is, we are completely blindsided for a moment that inevitably comes. What about a health concern? And someone goes through a long season where they're hurting and that person can't give you back what you expected to get. What happens then? Has something strange and bizarre happened? Have you fallen out of love? Is the spark gone? No, love is not something that hits you. Love is something you hold on to. Love is something that you're choosing. Love is what you said when you said in sickness or in health, in good times and bad, in poverty or wealth, till death do us part, I am vowing before all of my friends and family before God that I will stick by your side. That is what love looks like. It is patient, 
long-suffering, deeply sacrificial. It's not something so small as having one glorious moment when you say, I will go down in flames for what I believe. It is a constant, perpetual sacrifice that is day after day, week after week, month and year and decade after decade where you choose to be sacrificial. That's what he's talking about in love. He's saying, you think that's impressive? Let's take this into our marriages and I'll show you something really heroic and remarkable. Try kindness and patience in a marriage for a lifetime. That's greatness. That's when love has just started. And on the other end of that, there is a oneness and an intimacy and a fire like you can't believe on this side of it. This is God weighing in. Let me show you what love is. Just start with this patience and kindness. Dr. Robertson McQuilkin was a college president of Columbia International University. And he was the president from 1968 to 1990. 22 years, he gave the best, the, the best 22 years of his life he gave to this organization. Well-loved president, did many incredible things there, very sharp. And at 62, he had many years left to give, but at 62, in 1990, he resigned. And he explained in his resignation speech, he explained why he resigned. His wife, Muriel, had early onset Alzheimer's. And he said over time, he said she had a greater and greater need for him to be by her side. And he gave this speech explaining why he was resigning and it just was like a, a thunder strike that went around the globe. I want you to hear his resignation speech. I just want you to hear it from him directly. Check out this video. I haven't in my life experienced easy decision-making on major decisions, but one of the simplest and clearest decisions I've had to make is this one, because circumstances dictated it. Muriel, now, in the last couple of months, seems to be almost happy when with me, and almost never happy when not with me. In fact, she seems to feel trapped, becomes very fearful, sometimes almost terror. And when she can't get to me, there can be anger. She's in distress. But when I'm with her, she's happy and contented. And so I must be with her at all times. And you see, it's not only that I promised in sickness and in health, Till death do us part, and I'm a man of my word. But as I have said, I don't know with this group, but I've said publicly, it's the only fair thing she sacrificed for me for 40 years to make my life possible. So if I cared for her for 40 years, I'd still be in debt. However, there's much more. It's not that I have to, it's that I get to. I love her very dearly, and you can tell it's not easy to talk about. She's a delight.
It's a great honor to care for such a wonderful person. That's an example. You want to know this mysterious love? That's an example, like he said, of being a man of your word. But not just being a man of your word, that's an example of being a man. That's an example of being a woman that keeps her promises and reminds herself that I've covenanted my life before God. That's what it means to love. You might be here today and you're saying, look, I, I'm, I'm, I hear you, but I am walking out of here today and I'm going back into a difficult place to be long-suffering and patient and sacrificial, a difficult place to be kind and to be gracious. You say, where do I find, how much is enough? When do I draw the line? And one simple truth can I give you? If you want to know when you've hit your limit, I'll tell you. Here's your limit. I want you to think and imagine what you expect, what you ask for, what you hope for in terms of patience and kindness from God and then reflect that to your spouse. And the more you push into that, the more you'll realize his patience and kindness towards you is unlimited. What, what was the great act of generosity? He gave the treasure of heaven, the son of God, Jesus Christ. He gave him to the earth to pay for our sins. What was the great act of sacrifice Jesus himself, God in the flesh, was nailed to the cross, tortured and died, rose again from the dead. Why did he go through that? He did that to save us from our sins and eternity apart from him. He did that to win us back. And he's saying, now in light of that, go do that in your marriages. Prepare to do that in your future marriage. Maybe today, this afternoon, we can just take one simple step a step of being kind, perpetually, and readjusting my expectations to be patient indeterminately. But some of you, the first step for you today is making things right from God because you can't do it without his strength. And so your first step is to realize what he's done for you and just receive it. You can't give back to God. You just receive it as the act of generosity that it was. He gave you salvation through Jesus. And if you want to take that step, I want to lead you in a simple prayer today. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? If that's you today, you say, look, I want to make things right with God, then just simply pray this right there in your seats. Make these your, right in your, in your heart, make these your words to God. Say, God, thank you for your sacrifice and generosity to me. Thank you for what Jesus did on the cross to save me. Thank you that you loved me so well and so much that you do that. I receive your forgiveness and know that it's through Jesus alone that I'm saved. In his name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening. For more resources and to check out other teaching series, please visit our website at westpines.org. If you would like to speak with somebody about beginning a relationship with Jesus or ask any questions you have about this teaching, please call at 
432-0321. Or you can email us at podcast at westpines.org.